For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. I'm uh, very happy to introduce our guest speaker, Paul Kopp. Hello, Paul. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, Paul is the uh, associate professor in Chinese religion and thought at the University of Chicago. Um, He's uh, going to teach today, talk today about seals, metaphors, and how to read Buddhist texts. Paul is um, uh, one of the leading teachers, one of the leading scholars in uh, Tang Dynasty Chinese Buddhism, and uh, also in the Dun, the material from the Dunhuang Caves in uh, in uh, uh, China and Western China, a really important material in study of Chinese Buddhism. He's also uh, author of. Uh, a book called The Body Incantatory Spells and Ritual Imagination in Medieval Chinese Buddhism. We recently did a uh, Sagaki ceremony, which included many Dharanis. Um, uh, so uh, Paul is actually a leading scholar in that kind of material. So if you have questions about that from, uh, from that ceremony, uh, Paul can respond to that. Uh, so it's great to have Paul back. Paul is an old friend of Ancient Dragons. Way back in the days when we practiced at uh, our temple on Irving Park Road, uh, Paul uh, used to come to Sashin sometimes. So Paul is uh, an old friend of Ancient Dragon, and I'm just really delighted to have you back, Paul. So uh, thank you very much. Take it away. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Hello, everyone. Uh, it, it is a pleasure to be here. In the sense that we're here. Um, I'm glad that Taigen mentioned the book because uh, actually back in the days when I was uh, often at Ancient Dragon was a period I was struggling with that thing, especially the publication process that some of you may remember. Uh, I feel like, uh, you know, some of it came from, from that, uh, from that time. So, but this doesn't, this comes from something else today. Uh, I wanted to talk here about, um, you know, a small image that one, or a set of images, I guess, that one finds in Buddhist texts, or really a range of Buddhist texts, everything from early Mahayana sutras to uh, much later Zen texts uh, and elsewhere. And that, that, those are seals, stamp seals, that is, not, uh, not the kind of thing you find at Lincoln Park Zoo. 
stamp seals and their impressions as well. And the talk, uh, this is a talk that's actually drawn from my academic work, book I'm writing on seals in China, in Chinese religion more broadly. But uh, I hope that it won't merely be academic for all of you, but uh, will you know, offer some ideas anyway about uh, what we're doing when we're reading Buddhist texts, or what, not, not about that exactly, but what, uh, what Buddhist texts are, especially the older ones, um, which, uh, as I'll try to point out in some ways, you know, come from a very different world, I think, than, than the one we, or most of us live in. Um, you know, it'll help. My hope is to help help it flesh out in a sense our understanding of buddhist ideas as well right not just how they were presented uh, that is the rhetoric if you will but the actual substance of those ideas and the split between rhetoric and substance uh is not really a very helpful one all the time so the um so many of these ideas i think if we're serious about them you know these metaphors these images that we find in buddhist sutras and texts as well if we're serious about them, show the strangeness of these texts for us, or again, for most of us, for me anyway. Their world was not our world in all kinds of ways. And seeing that is an important part of studying these texts for, you know, for practitioners and for scholars alike, right? Um, now, let me just make clear that I'm not saying that if you don't have a full historical knowledge, right, that you can't understand these texts at all of course not um we all here will know and we all here we all are here in part because i think we can understand them right to a very great extent we get a lot from them um of course but there are also some things that we might miss or not fully understand if we're not attentive to some of the strangenesses in the text so seals is part of that i think uh, in Zen, I think it's fair to say that we have two seals that are most, or two usage of seal imagery, I guess, that are the most famous ones, right? On the one hand, we have the mind seal. That is what is transmitted, an image of what is transmitted from teacher to student, at least ideally, right? At least finally, in a sense, how the student's understanding comes to mirror, as it were, or be the same as exactly the same as that of the teacher and the same as that of the Buddha, right, himself going all the way back. Um, as if that understanding in this image, right, were stamped into the mind or into the being of the student. So on the one hand, the mind seal. On the other hand, the seal of approval, right? Inca or Inca, right? Another seal image, from the same process, I think. The teacher, as if stamping her approval on the understanding of the student and the transformed being of the student who has now become <clears throat> teacher. So fair enough, right? I think, I imagine we can understand that or we think we can, right? A seal is on the one hand, just it's a kind of stamp, right? It's just like any kind of stamp. Although as I'll try to show, that's not really right. Um, or a seal is just like a signature, in a way. Um, and sig modern signatures, our signatures and their seals, right, they, they do a lot of the same work. Um, the teacher, in a sense, signs off on, as if it were, as it were, the attainments of the student um, and the seal of approval. Again, I think it's not totally right, but, but, you know, it gets us a lot of the way there, right? 
But then on the other hand, you know, we read elsewhere, perhaps in Zen texts, where the mastery, the, the understanding, the liberation, indeed, of someone is described as if they wore at their belt, right, the seal of the Buddhas, the seal of the thus come ones, right? Um, maybe, at least for me, when I first encountered that, you know, you might wonder, like, what? <laughs> what, what what's, what's going on there, right? You can't wear a signature, can you? Or just a, you just wear the stamp on your belt, and that is somehow in that somehow embodies within you your, or it's a deep imagery, let's say, of your own liberation or mastery or whatever your whatever the favorite imagery is, right? I think, right? It's the wager of this talk, anyway, and part of the book, right? That when we encounter those images, their strangeness that there's something in the strangeness, right? That if we can dig into and think about, wonder at, will get us closer to what's being talked about in these bodies of Buddhist literature. Uh, and I think, or I found anyway, that once you start to look for them, in fact, seals as images of the true nature of things or of liberation are everywhere in Buddhist writings. They're used as images of the mutual identity of X and Y, right? Where X and Y could be both phenomena, seemingly external, right, out there. Or where X is a practitioner and Y is ultimate reality. Or where X is, you know, anything really you can imagine. And Y is mind with a capital M, right? Uh, as you'll find it in Buddhist texts. Uh, the oldest, I think the oldest, and probably the most pervasive of these images is found in various concepts that following, following one of their most general versions, um, I call reality seals, right? Stamps of the real. In this group, we also find seals called things like seal of the law or the seal of the Dharma, right? Seal of the Buddha, seal of the Dharmakaya, right? Um, seal of reality as such, that is. Um, and in other times, in other images, that is, uh, attention was given not to an imagined seal matrix, right, that is the stamp, but to the act of sealing itself, the stamping. In one famous case, uh, understanding of the true nature of things was said to be the perception of a kind of primordial sealing marking all things, the one dharma, right, the ifa, the unitary identity of reality as understood by Buddhas, at least in some Buddhist doctrines, was described as having imprinted its stamp on all phenomena, right? Now, the idea of a single identity marking all things was well-suited, I think, to the idea of a seal, as was that of immense power, immense potency in hearing a very small object, right? Something you can hold in your hand. And following what I often think of as the dream logic or perhaps the mythological styles of Mahayana Buddhist scriptures, reality seals were both metaphors for the goals of spiritual cultivation and actual physical seals taken in the hand and stamped on scriptures to protect them in some of these early texts, right, from the predations of demons or other enemies of the doctrines they contain, and also to mark them as true in the most profound way. A typical example, many, and this may be the earliest example, it's very hard to say, um, some have argued it is, uh, is found in a text, an early Mahayana Sutra called the Meditation of Direct Encounter with the Buddhas of the Present, or the Pratitpana Sutra, 
where we are encouraged to rejoice over the teachings, to copy them out on fine silk, then to seal, to stamp that silk with the seal of the Buddhas, and then to make offerings to it, which all seems kind of straightforward, I think, right? At least, you know, we can understand that. But then the text asks, here's a quote, what is the seal of the Buddha? It is, namely, that which cannot act, is without cravings, without desires, without conceptual thoughts, without attainments, without aspirations, without rebirth, without preferences, birthless, non-existent, non-grasping, non-caring, unabiding, unobstructed, non-existent, unbound, exhausted of what exists, exhausted of desires, not produced from anywhere, imperishable, indestructible, ineradicable, the essence of the way and the root of the way. As to this seal, the arhats and the pratyeka buddhas, that is, as you may know, the kind of standard straw men of Mahayana, early Mahayana literature, they cannot destroy it. They cannot ruin it, and they cannot impair it. Fools doubt this seal. It is the seal of the Buddha. Unquote. I think this, this account, it's a nice one, is helpful for understanding what seals were in these texts because it vividly brings to bear, brings together so many aspects of conceptual and ritual seals in these texts. First and most simply, the seal of the Buddha, whatever else it is, is here an actual seal to be stamped on a material medium. So one might, you know, given the nature of the seal, as the Buddha describes it in this passage, say, well, that it's just a metaphor, right? It should not be understood as a material object at all, but purely as a metaphor for a particular samadhi, right? That is, Samadhi, the contemplative vision of reality is described in the sutra. Indeed, reality seals very often figure understanding said to be gained in samadhis. And this is an important and maybe the most important aspect of their history, reflected in a large body of Buddhist scripture and philosophical literature. But to take the image here in its context within a tale, right, within a story, as only metaphorical would miss something, I think, in this text. But we do find purely metaphorical images of seals in Buddhist texts, and I'm going to talk about one at the end of this talk. But they tend to appear within the abstract discussions of doctrinal treatises or scriptural commentaries. And that's, you know, a feature of the nature of those genres, which tend to dissolve I think it's fair to say the concrete narrative components and styles of scriptures within abstract doctrinal systems. In stories, as here, the logics of narrative demand, first of all, literal reception. A seal in these contexts, in Buddhist sutras, is first of all, or whatever else it might be, right, a clear-eyed vision of the nature of things, for example, is first of all simply a seal, a a small carved object to be held in the hand, or worn dangling from a cord at the belt, right? A practice that we find across the ancient world, really. Um, the Afro-Eurasian world, as they say. So what is a seal, right? What was a seal? Better to ask. What was a seal, right? That it could re- represent all these things. What I want to emphasize here quickly is that it's a, it's a material, it's a thing, right? It's a material representation and an instantiation of identity. That's what a seal was. So we take, so just to give some examples, right? Kings had seals, right? And the king and the seal embodied, right? The power of the throne was 
embodied in this little piece of, of whatever, of wood, right, in some cases, of bronze in many other cases, of gold, supposedly, in some cases, right, such that, you know, if, um, you know, Douglas is the king, right, and I'm his matra, and I'm his minister, right, he can, he can give me his seal, and I can take that seal and go forth, and people will, and, you know, and, and do the business of the king, right, and I, I show them the seal, and they will listen, right, it's as if I, bearing the king's seal, am the power of the throne, right? And if the, if the, excuse me, if the seal is stolen, at least theoretically, you know, you can steal the power of the throne, right? You can go do the king's business because you have the seal. Um, you know, in Chinese, early Chinese history, right, there's all kinds of, there's a story or a range of stories about the seal called the, you know, the seal of the transmission of the, of the, of the throne, let's just say, of the power of the throne, which people were scrambling for all the time, trying to get, you know, to claim that they actually had the power of the throne. A story I always like to tell uh, with seals that kind of made the strangeness of it to me was I, when I lived in Taiwan years ago, I wanted to have a bank account. Um, and to have a bank account, I had to have a seal. I had to have a little piece of wood. And I had to have a Chinese name, my Chinese name on it. I didn't have a Chinese name. I had to get a Chinese name, which was weird for me. And it had to be inscribed on this piece of wood. And then I had to have this piece of wood to, to do business with the bank. And if I didn't have the piece of wood, this, this thing, which was very strange to me and I was very troubled about, you know, I couldn't do that business. It's almost as if the, the thing was more me than me, right? in a certain case, in a certain sense, right? And that, that's what a seal is. And that's what I'm trying to get at here. That's what's being, that's what's behind, you know, some of this imagery in these texts, right? Um, also, not just the matrix, not just the stamp, right? But the impression, right? You could stamp it in some clay, right? And give it to somebody. And then all the same things uh, happen, right? The power of the identity of the person, you know, figured on the stamp or named on the stamp was in the seal and it was also in the impression and was also in the person carrying the impression, right? This kind of um, almost contagiousness, right? Well, that's a bad word these days, sorry, um, for these uh, objects is, is key to understanding what these things were. So when we go back to the mind seal, right? The teacher is the seal, the student is the clay, the, the teacher imprints the seal, the mind seal into the clay. But then it doesn't stop there, right? Because in a kind of dream magic, right? The, the, the impression can then turn around and act as a seal stamping others, right? I mean, that maybe doesn't happen with actual impressions, but in the, in the kind of logic of these, uh, of these images, right? That's exactly what happens. Um, okay. These things were everywhere, as I say, not only in Buddhist texts, but in the lives of the people um, who were writing these texts and reading these texts, right? They were in some ways, I think, the most common and important markers and instantiators of identity, such a part of everyday life and everyday selves, I think, that they could exert their own logics and take and they took on lives of their own. And I like to think that that's something like that is what we see at play in discussions of one of the most famous and probably the most complex set of images centering on, on seals or seal-like images in the Buddhist tradition, or at least in the East Asian Buddhist tradition. And this is the image of 
the Hain Sanmei, right? Or some of you will have encountered it um, through the Japanese pronunciation, right? Kain Zanmai, right? Originally understood as the samadhi of the ocean of stamped impressions or, or reflections, right? This is an image of the infinitely vast welter of phenomena as it is experienced by Buddhas. And of the comprehensive vision, or again, samadhi, that one can attain oneself as a practitioner, right? Through practice. Most basically, just, just thinking about what the image is, right? It's an image of a vast sea, perfectly calm, right? Utterly calm, utterly flat, and thus acting like a mirror, perfectly reflecting all things. The image draws, of course, on the very old Buddhist idea of the mind as mirror, right? And it is, again, in its earliest cases, an affirmation of the infinity of phenomena and of the power of the mind to grasp it all in these particular states called samadhis. For example, in a, in a fifth century Chinese version of a text called the Great Collection Scripture, right, the Da Ji Jing, in a, excuse me, in a passage widely quoted in later tradition, it's asserted that when one attains this samadhi, one attains complete comprehension of all phenomena and perfectly understands the meanings of all scriptures such that one can effectively preach all the discourses of the Buddhas and one comes fully to understand the minds of all beings. Using the central trope of this hyen, that's this ocean seal, right, or ocean impression, wherein the mind of an awakened being is likened to the water of a great ocean, the text has the Buddha state that the samadhi is named quote, great hyen, that is here clearly the great ocean of reflections, because the mind in the samadhi is again like the great ocean that reflects the images and the bodies, focus on bodies here, interestingly, of all beings and all external forms. And simply and as an aside, I think it's interesting um, that the great modern encyclopedic dictionaries of the Chinese language, the Japanese Daikan Wajiten, the Chinese Hanyu uh, Datsudian, they both give this passage um, as the earliest example for the modern sense of this word stamped image, right, inshang, as meaning mental impression or the kind of sense you have of something. Right? Mm. That seems to have come from the Buddhist tradition, interestingly. Um, okay, but you may know, where's the seal? There's no seal there. I bring up this image, right, the ocean of seal impressions, um, not for these initial, this initial understanding, but for what happened to it later in the Buddhist tradition, right? Uh, because fairly quickly, um, writers made use of the fact that the in, right, the, the impression, which also means seal, um, does not only mean seal impression, but also seal matrix, that is stamp. And though the initial use intended the former, the latter was very clearly there for the reader and the writer. That is, I mean, these, they have seals on their belts, right? They're using seals all the time. The seal has its own kind of magic, kind of power, social power, right? And I like to think that this was in part driven by the seals that they wore in their sashes, right? And that embodied their identities, these, these just potent little things, Seeing it, this, this sort of leakage of the matrix right into the impression here, open the image up, I like to think. It could mean both now the image, came, it came to mean, right, both the array of impressions, but also a single stamp making those impressions, right? Like the seal of the Buddha we saw back in the Prachipana bit. 
the ocean here is now both mirror and seal, right? This becomes crucial to this image. And as the loose tradition, we can call it a tradition, anyway, the, the history of interpretations of Hayin Sanmei grew over time, the idea that the ocean could be both mirror and seal, and specifically a reality seal, right, as I talked about it a minute ago, captured the imaginations of some who explored the meanings of these scriptures. And it became, a, in prominent cases, the very point of this image, right? It's now the mirror slash seal, right? Like duck slash rabbit. And then so in the mirror seal of these accounts, one finds a vivid metaphor for the Buddhist idea that the awakened mind achieves perfect awareness simultaneously of both the endless and ineluctable particularity of things, mind as mirror, and their single unifying identity, right? Mind as seal, which is, or was taken to be a kind of perfect image of at least one version of what are called the dual truths, right? The two truths um, in, Buddhist, in Buddhist thought. As Bodhiruchi's famous translator, 8th century translation of a text called The Heap of Gems, the Maharanakuta Sutra, put it, quote, if all bodhisattva mahasattvas diligently practice the samadhi of the ocean, and I want to say mirror slash seal, they will see all phenomena as identical with the Dharma realm. That is the world understood as the realm of reality, as it has sometimes been translated in English. Seeing in this way, the account continues, they will privilege neither disparate phenomena nor unitary realm in their understanding, right? It's both, or it's neither. It's, it's, you know, one wants to drag out the tetralemma, but let's not do that here. The Hyen Samadhi, that is this Samadhi of the ocean seal, was most clear, closely associated with the Huayanjing, the Avatamsaka Sutra, right, the flower adornment scripture, um, and its Chinese exegetical tradition, which claimed the samadhi to have been foundational to the Buddhist teachings as put forth in the scripture. Indeed, it was claimed that it was that the Buddha was actually in this samadhi when he preached the Huayanjing, the Avatamsaka scripture. And the appeal of this complex metaphor to Huayan writers as to those of the other major traditions of Tang Buddhist writing, Tiantai, Chan, Esoteric, what have you, is easy to understand, I think. Though, of course, the history of Buddhist thought in this period saw a great variety in styles and emphases, with some thinkers emphasizing one side, you know, welter of phenomena, uh, or the other, you know, unitary seal, um, for Tang Buddhist thinkers eager to portray the full complexity of the Buddhist vision of reality, Hayin as either only reflection or only seal cannot have been fully satisfactory, I think. For these writers, even as they too at times emphasize one or the other, the full image clearly proved immensely attractive. A seal imposing its single identity on all which was simultaneously a mirror affirming the unhindered and endless free play of difference. So I'm going to close here with a text by the early 8th century author Fadzang, considered one of the ancestors of the Huayan uh, um, commentarial tradition, a text called the, it's one of these long kind of crazy titles you're writing, A Contemplation of How Cultivating the Innermost Teachings of the Flower Adornment Scripture, Delusions Are Exhausted and One Returns to the Source. Right? That's the title. It helps to bring 
this short presentation of seals, reality seals, full circle, I think, because um, while it features both mirror and seal, it comes down kind of solidly on the side of the unifying seal. And in doing so, it makes clear for us once again the special character of a seal as an impressive matrix, the single identity. It uh, extends to a medium, whether a sack of grain, right, bound for the market, or the very objects of sensory awareness themselves. The ocean seal, uh, sorry, here's a quote. Here's Fadzan talking now. The ocean seal is the original awakening of suchness. With delusions exhausted, the mind is clear and all phenomena are revealed as equal. That is, this is just as on a great ocean, waves arise because of the wind. When the wind ceases, the water of the ocean clears and all things without exception appear reflected on its surface. The Awakening of Faith, important text, calls this condition the, quote, treasury of limitless merit, the ocean of the suchness of Dharma nature, uh, unquote, within Fadzang's text. As for being named the Samadhi of the Ocean Seal, as the Fadzang says, that's, this is the, the Chinese version of the Dhammapada, which you may be familiar with, or this is a very different version of the Dhammapada than you may know. Quote, the vast array of the myriad images of the phenomenal world are all sealed by the one dharma. Unquote. The one dharma is what is called the one mind. This mind embraces all worldly and transcendent dharmas. It is none other than the vast single attribute of all things in the dharma realm. It is only because of delusory thoughts that there seems to be differentiation within it. When one is apart from delusory thoughts, then there is only suchness. Thus one speaks of the samadhi, of the ocean seal. Unquote, that's Fadza. Now some of you will recognize the text, one of the texts invoked here, the Mahayana Awakening of Faith, right? And just tremendously important text in East Asian Buddhism, Zen too, which features the metaphors of wind and delusion stirring up waves on the sea of mind, right? Here, of course, stilled so that the conditions of the uh, samadhi of the ocean seal can prevail. The The passage is clear in its emphasis on the singularity of mind and world, again, reflecting the awakening of faith's own emphasis and using its terms, right? It's like I always used in class, I always use the example of Lake Michigan, right? You go to Lake Michigan, you don't just see, you know, water, you, you know, pure water, or flat water, you see water and it's all, it's different, it's different features, right? And waves, right? And one wave, and you know, endlessly falling into another wave or one wave endlessly arising and falling away, right? And um, the awakening of faith makes a lot of, on the one hand, you know, you have endless, endlessly transforming difference, which is at the same time only one thing, water, right? I mean, this is what the text does. So that is so in, in the text, right? When experienced in its primordial state, that is for Fadzang, when in the Hayin San Mei, the winds of delusion have ceased to disturb it. Mind is revealed as none other than the treasury of limitless merit, the ocean of the suchness of Dharma nature, right? Mind itself here for Fadzang is the world in this imagining, right? An ocean infinitely productive and infinitely full of blessings. Perhaps because as Fadzang knew, 
This image of mind and world as a sea surface full of clouds and other reflections could just as easily be an image of endless distant difference, excuse me, as of single identity. The text immediately clarifies itself, right? It brings to bear a line from one of the most famous images of reality stealing in the tradition, this Chinese version of the Dhammapada I mentioned, right? On how each member of the world's infinite phenomenal array bears the single stamp of the one Dharma, right? Fadzang immediately identifies this as the one mind that is none other than suchness itself, the absolute undifferentiation of things. Another term, like the list of characteristics or non-characteristics perhaps, right, of the Prachipana passage on the seal of of the Buddha, right, non-arising, non-grasping, non-this, non-that, or like the Dharma realm, right, the Dharmakaya, a gesture at the nature of the world itself, just as it is. So that's what I wanted to say about seals um, and the imagery of seals. I'm happy to hang around for as long as you'd like, I guess, and talk about it. So hope it was hope it was helpful or interesting anyway, or diverting. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, so we'll, we have time for discussion, questions, responses. I have one to start off, but just to let people know um, if you go to the bottom and click on the participants window, you can raise your hand there. Uh, it's uh, so uh, David Ray, maybe you can help me. Uh, I'll call on people when they raise their hands or indicate it on the participants window. Um, I can't see everybody at one time, uh, but um, I, I want to start off by, uh, uh, asking a question myself first, just to mention that when I lived in Japan, similarly, I had one of those seals and I you know, had to, to open a bank account or anything. I had to you know, use that seal. Fortunately, I had the name Taigen, which I could use as my seal. But it's kind of like a, having a driver's license here. It's your, like your identity card or something. Yeah. So, so I had to use that. But I have a question, Paul, uh, which is the character in... Uh, which uh, is seal, I believe also is the character for mudra, uh, which is like, you know, our hand position or various other physical uh, expressions or gestures or postures or attitudes. And I wonder if you could comment on the uh, mudra as a seal, a physical expression of that. Yeah. Yeah. The word mudra means seal. As you may ask, people who study Sanskrit here will, will know, right? Um, and so when these texts were translated into Chinese, they took the, the kind of main word. There are, there are other words for seals, but <clears throat> the kind of main word for seal, and that's in. Um, so, I mean, it's a complicated subject. I mean, it's an important one, right? Uh, how is a mudra, seal? I mean, a mudra, you know, and seal in Chinese, in Buddhism, right? They have such a range of meanings, seal, um, and this, you see this, I think, more in the kind of Tibetan tradition, right? That the seal, um, well, let's not go into that. Um, one thing I will say, in ritual practice, right, um, interestingly, and I kind of make a lot of this in my work, uh, the, the, you, the, you use, in, in broadly speaking, esoteric practices, you kind of, you make these mudras, right? I'm not very good at them, never been good at them. But you, here's a mudra, right? You can make a mudra, mm-hmm. and you, in ritual practice, you can actually stamp 
you can actually stamp people with your hand, right? And you are to stamp them with the seal, them with the seal, the text will say, you know, I don't, um, and in many ritual texts, that means that you actually touch them, touch their bodies with your hand in the mudra, right? And that, that does various things, right? That imparts various kinds of things. Um, what, what, what aspect of it? I mean, it, you know, these, these sort of consorts of deities, right, in Tibetan tradition are called their seal, right, which seems to connect in all, you know, in, in these sort of intimate uh, relations, let's just say, in all kinds of ways. Um, how have you seen it, Taigen, in, uh, I don't know, my well, mind is blanking, sorry. Well, in, uh, for ex- in Zen, for example, Dogen yeah. talks about the Zazen posture as a kind of seal. Yeah. Uh, right. So uh, uh, an, an expression of yeah. Buddha uh, physically, Right. He talks about expressing um, right. uh, the Buddha seal in body and mind. Uh, so it's, it the seems like a seal. physical expression of the thing that is stamped. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I just well, mudras, that. right? They are images, embodiments, literally, right, of various states um, in, in in these kinds of texts. And the zazen posture, right, to call it that, um, is that right? And as you will know, of course, much better than I do. Um, the posture itself, right, is is an embodiment, right? Is a is a a way of making a realizing, right? Uh, what zazen is about, um, and any kind of mudras, you know, these kinds of physical postures, right? They're not only not only with the hands, right, but but physical gestures of all kinds, postures of all kinds, standing postures are sometimes referred to as seals, right, as mudra um, in a range of texts. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we have a couple of questions, um, yeah. uh, and people can raise their hands, but I'll call on Sinyu first. Uh well, thank you for your talk. I um, so also commenting on what Tigan just said and what Paul just said. I have uh, when, uh, when I was in China, and um, it, it's the seal is often used, and I know that uh, like different materials for making seals, a lot of like social status things, and yeah, uh, I, I know that nowadays, like sometimes, like this sort of stone called chicken blood is really like a luxurious thing in Chinese xixie uh, shi. And uh, yeah, so that's a, so uh, that, that's something I recalled. And um, so I am uh, curious about, so in this sense of seal or like uh, there is, in the word seal, there is a sense of uh, imprinting or like impression, as you just said, and I'm wondering. Uh, there, there is also, I, I, if I think about this word seal, I think about like uh, completing something or signifying a. Uh, for example, we seal at the like put a, I don't know, stamp our document at the very end uh, yeah. when everything is finished, or uh, we we stamp an envelope, let's say, and uh, so I wonder if there is also this sense of um, completeness in this, uh, in, in, for seal in 
the Buddhist context? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first, just quickly on the the materials, right? I mean, uh, you know, seals are a vast subject, and outside the kind of stuff I typically talk about, but but feeding into it, right? You know, you in in Chinese governmental practice, right? Going back to the Han Dynasty and before, you know, depending on your rank in the society, you're you're allowed to use a different kind of substance, right? For your for your seal, right? And if um, you are not allowed to use a, a substance above your station. Um, also, in in ritual practice, um, the kind of kind of magical side of things that I like so much. Um, you know, we have seal manuals from Dunhuang <clears throat> that didn't survive otherwise. That talk about you know different kinds of wood, right, to be used on different kinds of seals, magical seals. Let's call them for different kinds of purposes, right. And this, I like to think of this among other things as part of you know the sort of material is materiality of these objects, the thingness of these objects, right. Um, that it's not just the image on the seal that is that is the thing, right? The signature, as it were, right? That is being stamped onto something, but actually the the, the substance of the seal itself, right, is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and another, anyway, one could go into that, go talk about that for a long time. But uh, this this question of what they're made out of, right? What they are, right, is central. Ends up being central to just whole different bodies of. Um, discourse on seals, right? I don't actually know what chicken blood stone are, but I'm going to look that up, right? <laughs> Probably hard to come by. Um, the other issue, right, sealing as completion. Um, that's a great question. You know, one one thing that immediately came to mind, uh, something I often say when I talk about seals is that, you know, we have the word mudra, we have the word in, and we have the word seal, right, in three different languages. And one thing you have to do when you when you start uh, talking about all this stuff is sort of saying, well, you know, to what extent do these meanings overlap and to what extent do they not overlap? Right. Mm -hmm. And one way, interestingly, they do not overlap, at least with English and Chinese is that in English we say, you know, you can seal something, right. You can close it up. Right. This is not a way that you you can confirm or deny this. Um, She, you for me, but uh, you know, in my sense, this is not something that you use the word in for, you don't in something. Right. There are other phone, right? Which is another word connected with seal, which means actually to seal in that sense. And by association, that comes to mean a seal. But the basic concept of seal, right, does not include, interestingly, um, this closure, right? And in, in this that kind of a perfect enclosure, right? In the sense of sealing in English, right? You seal an envelope, not just by stamping on it, but you you just close it, right? Um, and so closure, in a sense, right, closure, um, not to emphasize the pronunciation too much, closure uh, as sealing, you know, I just don't know. I'm not thinking of anything. But I'm going to think about that now. Um, I don't know. Thank you for that. I'm going <laughs> to get to work on that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Thank you for the question and the response. Uh, Eve Pinsker, you're, you're up next. Uh, uh, well, that's interesting if it doesn't have that association with closure. I mean, because I was thinking it, it does seem to connect with what you were saying about uh, about performativity, um, about seals as being able 
you know, to, to do things, to have power to affect action in the world. Um, anyway, what I wanted to ask about, so I presume you're familiar with Charles Purse's distinctions between icon, vex, yeah. and symbol. Yeah. And I mean, to me, when you get the most power for performativity is when you get signs that are all three at once. And it seems to me that seal fits that the way you're talking about it, that, that seals and the act of sealing that they, they conflate that um, being symbols, icons and indices. Yeah. How can you say more about that? How does that, what about when they all, how do they all come together in the seal in your mind? Well, the, um, the, you know, the, the, on the symbolic level that the, the ideas about conflation between the world um, and the mirrors of the world and the world and the mind and the particular and the general. Uh, so I would put that, you know, like in the, in the symbolic realm that, that there's been this like philosophical discourse that's invoked by seal, but, and then um, the physical seal um, the relation between the matrix and and the stamp is indexical, that they're physically part of the same, you know, thing. Yeah. And then when you bring the seal into contact with, you know, with paper or what you're stamping the image on, you know, that's, again, that's an indexical relationship. Um, and, and that's where you get the power to do things in the world, the performative power. Yeah. And then, um, but yeah, like I said, it's, it, it's, um, the, the, that what gets tied together is greater because you get that conflation of, of the physical, um, the physically indexical with the symbolic. And then, and then the icon, um, it's more powerful because, because you get that idea of mirroring that's embodied in the thing itself yeah. that you have an image that gets stamped on something else. And so then you, you get that, you know, the, the um, idea of the icon too. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, I admit in my own stuff, I kind of resist going kind of full semiotic, whether Persian <laughs> or otherwise, but there's a scholar uh, at NYU named um, Brigitte Bedos-Rezac, a scholar of European, mostly British, I think. Yeah. Little stuff. And she has a whole book <laughs> where she goes in, she kind of makes Persian connections, you know, in great detail. It's completely fascinating. She's one of the most, maybe the best in my mind anyway, a scholar of all this stuff. One thing I, that I do find helpful um, in the kind of broadly speaking Persian world, right? And here I think about this anthropologist at Michigan named Webb Keen, right? He, oh, I know him. You do? Okay. I never met him. Student. He was, do you know, did you ever, um, I don't know. I was wondering when you're talking, if you, if you knew about um, Pete Becker's book, um, Beyond Translation, Essays Toward a Modern Philology. So Webb Keen was a student of Alton Becker and so was I. Oh, okay. Beyond Translation, I'm writing that down here. Yeah. Essays Toward a Modern Philology. Um, Alton or Pete Becker was, he was, um, professor at Michigan. I was an undergrad there. Um, and, um, and he, he, um, 
he studied Wayang, studied um, Javanese shadow plays, and he was he studied under a Dalang in Java for two years. Oh. And one of the my like favorite academic essays is his essay on Javanese Wayang, and it is about. And his whole book, which is a collection of his essays, is about reading uh, language and texts across cultures. Anyway, what Keen was a student of his. Well, that's great. No, thank you for that. I'm going to go read that book. Um, so, just one thing I want to say, just very quickly, is that Keen he kind of brings in uh, this broadly speaking Persian insight that it's you know the, the, the particular instantiation, the materiality of it, right, is is key, and that's you know infinitely helpful when thinking about seals, right? Um, but thank you. Yeah, thank you, Eve. Uh, we have a whole bunch of people who yeah. uh, yeah. want to ask questions, so let's uh, keep them uh, somewhat uh, concise. Anyway, Paul Disco, please, uh, uh, you're up. Well, I, I have uh, two questions, but I think I'll stick to the simple one. Why do you think, or what is the history of the red, the red color of the seal? This, this seems to be quite common throughout East East uh, Asian Buddhism or, or society in general. Right. Just, I mean, that's... sorry, please. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, do you have some idea of what the origins of that is and, and has it has some, what significance it has as being that a particular red color? Yeah, not a good answer. Um, red, of course, has a range of associations in, in, in China. It's the, um, among you know, among other things, it's the lucky color, right? It's the positive color. Um, it seems to have associations with kind of life, right? Uh, I will say, and I don't know if that's helpful or not. It may not be, but um, going back, say, looking at Dunhuang manuscripts where we can actually see the color, right, of these stamps, you, there is a distinction on the manuscripts between the official stamps, right, that are on a, you know a range of manuscripts, for example. Uh, monastic ordination certificates, right? When people become became monks, became ordained, they you know you had to have an you got an official certificate from the government, the local government, and those seals are always in red. Um, interestingly, there are a range of personal seals that show up on the manuscripts that are almost never in red; they're almost always in black, which is the you know, regular ink color. Um, so I can only. This is not a question I've gone into, but I, I can only affirm, you know, that going back as far as we can see, that official stamps were in red, right? And personal stamps outside of Dunhuang were occasionally in red, but usually not in red. So there seems to have been, at least initially, a kind of, uh, you know, something, it was a color that the government kept for itself, right? Um, that ends, I think, when you get this explosion of personal stamps, personal sealings, culture in around the year 1000, beginning of the Song Dynasty or so. Um, and so you'll see stamps on paintings, seals on paintings. They're very often in red. And that association with government um, seems to have, or it's kind of unique association with the government seems to have, the state seems to have fallen away. But sorry, I don't have a good answer to that, but I can only kind of give a little sidebar on it. Hope that's helpful anyway. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Thank you. Again, b- uh, bunches of questions. Uh, so, uh, and I, I have you on the listeners on Douglas next. Oh, thank you very much. Um, 
as you were speaking, I, I was thinking of something in my own area, former area of expertise, which was law, and how even in this country, seals until very recently were required for documents to take effect. So for corporate actions, formal corporate actions, the seal could certainly be used and was required to authenticate documents, uh, corporate documents or contracts, that sort of thing. But the, but the seal also not only could, was evidence of authenticity, but the initial say corporate resolution, initial corporate action had to be written and sealed in order to, um, so that the seal had a performative effect. The action was not finally effective until a document had been sealed. And that's really been the case as well for legislation in this country, that approval of legislation by a legislature is not completed until it's been sealed generally speaking, by both the legislative and executive branches of a government. So, um, so a, do, a sealed document is not only authentic, but it has, it's been empowered by the fact that it's having been sealed. Yeah. And I think that carries over, as you were saying in the dis- your discussion of mudras, mudras of seals, that it, when we sit and we hold our hands in that Vairochana uh, mudra, it's not just that this is the real deal. This is a sign of authenticity. I'm doing this right. But by taking the form, the posture and form and hand signal as symbol of Virochana, we embody Virochana. Yeah. We embody Virochana's Bi- awakening. And Dogen, with his influence from Ten- uh, Tendai Bulan, has the same sort of approach when he says, you know, that the that uh, the the mind we have when we take the posture of zazen is the mind of awakening. Um, this is the very esoteric Buddhist kind of approach to, to that. That's great. I'd like to uh, let the record show that, that I'm going to sign on for that answer to the question earlier on mudras and seals. <laughs> I think that's exactly right, right? Because the seal is, a seal is the, it, is, it embodies the identity of whatever it embodies the identity of, right? And so by taking the seal, um, being, becoming the seal, you, that, it's that kind of identity magic, right? Exactly. I'm curious, just one quick question. So a, a seal in law, in law firms and in, in government offices, um, do, is it that one object that is the thing? Or can, you know, is it more like a stamp in my sense that, you know, the object itself doesn't really matter. You know, it's just, it's a kind of a ritual tool in that case. You just grab whichever one you happen to have because you have a bunch of them that all have the same thing on them. You know, because in the culture out of which, you know, say Fadzong was writing, um, each ministerial office had one seal and that seal was kept in their office and very tightly controlled. And that was it. That's the seal. Right. You can't make more than one of them. Well, that's still the case here that the corporate secretary, maybe an assistant secretary, would have the corporate seal, which can either be a stamp or in addition to that, um, the seal can be take. Uh, it'll be a metal stamp that's impressed on paper so firmly that it it it's it's an impression in the paper. In order to, in fact, to show it for photocopies for to demonstrate authenticity, people have to take the seal document and then with lightly uh, run a pencil over it to show the raised portions on the paper that. Oh. 
I, that mark the seal. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, that's less and less the case now is the law tries, at least American law, tries to abandon what are frequently considered stupid or useless <laughs> formalities. But it had a real effect in the past. And there was a reason for using the seal um, uh, in that way. But, and, you know, I mean, the similarly, uh, even now, you know, the seal of the notary public uh, which is also disappearing to some extent. For many documents, the document has no effect until it's been sealed by the notary public. It's also evidence of authenticity of a signature. So there's a there's an affidavit by the notary underneath it that says uh, today, whatever uh, November first, two thousand twenty, appeared before me, Douglas Floyd, to me known, who affixed his signature, did this document, bang. And so the seal of the the notary is showing this is the real deal. This is an authentic signature, but it also makes the document effective. It's not effective until that's happened. That's great. Interesting. So, uh, again, many uh, people lined up for questions. Uh, Dylan, um, uh, would you like to ask your question now? Dylan has asked me to um, to say the question because his audio is is spotty. Okay, go, David. I just wanted to add um, in in English when we use the word character, this is the Greek word for seal, and in in oh. Christian theology, baptism is described as putting putting the character of baptism on the soul, and it refers to seal. And when when we say sense impression, that's that's precisely. The, the the metaphor it, it only refers to stamping wax. So when well, in Chinese too, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Right, it's really interesting. So uh, um, Dylan's question is: Do early Huayan texts or other Buddhist texts that you've studied, uh, Paul, talk about consciousness? And if so, do they do they present it as a concept separate from the concept of mind? Oh, wow, that's a, <laughs> there's a question. There's a question. Um, <laughs> Can I phone a friend on that one? Um, <laughs> consciousness separate from mind. Boy, that's interesting. I wanted to say no. But mind refers to a range of things in these texts, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when it, perhaps the split between mind and consciousness that Dylan is asking about, you know, is there. Uh, you know, there's kind of awareness, right? There's individual awareness. And then but often drawing on the so-called mind-only or Yogacara tradition, right, which Huayan was deeply infused with, you know, mind is both, right, any one of our minds, right, and how we experience the world and how we, and the world as we experience it, right, is not separable from our experience of it, right, on the impressions on our minds, for example, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's this kind of cosmic, um, completely depersonalized mind, right? Um, but I don't know what consciousness means, maybe. I mean, it sounds like there's some kind of brain science stuff behind this question, and I just don't know about it. But, uh... Yeah, that's a very complicated question. I think there are, in Chinese, char- in Chinese characters, and I think in Sanskrit, a few different different words that could be translated as mine. And there's that too, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, again, we have many 
people lined up for questions. Uh, Hogetsu, um, would you like to ask a question? Yeah, it's great to see you, Paul, and uh, thank you for your dharmic and scholarly brilliance shines brightly. Um, I I feel like a strong affinity with Dung Wang, and I wondered about the material practice of Buddhist practitioners if we went back in a time machine, you know, and what the seals looked like, how they were utilized in a material way. Um, that's just something I had a question about. <laughs> what the seals looked like and how they were. Yeah, like like you said, people carried them on their belts. For instance, yeah. on my obi, I have a clip. Uh-huh. And stamped on the clip are Dharma flowers. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so as a priest, when I put my robes on, every time I touch that clip, I have a certain samadhi, you might say. And, you know, that's something if you, you know, we could do with anything, but there's something about the, the imprint, <laughs> the seal oh, on really? that. And, and I wondered about just like how people practiced and what they were experiencing in a tactile and visual and experiential way. Um, of course, you know, you have perfect understanding of that. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I've just become fascinated by and why I decided to write a book, I was just, this was just a chapter in a book on manuscripts, on these manuscripts that had these seal manuals on them. And I thought, well, I should say something about seals too. And then sort of, whoa, you know, and just became this whole uh, book in itself. Um, And then seals and stamps together, I mean, they're just everywhere. There's a range of different kind of trajectories, historical trajectories, um, including one that leads, you know, via, I would say, the stamping of, of cloth, right, into the, to printing, right, the, the earliest. Um, it's quite clear, I think, that the earliest uh, block printing came out of stamp, the stamping of text. So stamping is like this, right? Block printing is mm. you put the piece of paper down and then you kind of rub it up. And so it's a different physical technique, right? But it's clear... I think that uh, the, the the printing came from the stamping, right? Uh, and the stamping of bricks, right? In architecture, the stamping of this, mm. stamping of texts, right? The carrying of seals. Um, they're really just just everywhere. Um, so what, is this, what did a seal look like and how are they carried, right? Um, most of the seals early on, they, they would have a kind of a handle, right? A kind of a little loop. So there's a block, you know, usually sometimes a block, sometimes just a flat piece um, with the, in Chinese seals are mostly just words, right? Seals, that is, there are, there are many stamps with images, but the, what I think of as seals proper are mostly just words, names typically. Um, so there's a little loop, right? That can be used for the stamping, but also, you know, you can put a, a string through it or whatever. And one was to wear it, um, from one's belt, right? As a sign initially of um, one's status, right? One was the minister of X, Y, or Z. Um, and this, that practice, I mean, you, know, you can go to, if you want to come down to Hyde Park, right? The Oriental Institute, and you look at these old uh, cylinder seals and other seals, I mean, they were doing the same thing. 
sort of, right? Um, at least the same thing in the basic level of putting strings through them and putting them on their bodies, right? Wearing them. Um, there are others that were little blocks that have holes drilled all the way through, right? Probably it seems, I mean, scholars just guess, it seems right for that same purpose, right? To be worn, right? So the, the display of the seal was a way of using the seal, right? And all of these practices, stamping, wearing, etc., cetera, making, um, are were translated into religious practices, right? Into into uh, magical practices of various kinds. Um, such that I mean, I I like I love this these lines one finds in Zen texts, right? Where you know this master, you know, you you could he was it was as if he wore the seal of the Buddha, right? I mean, we have you may have the seal of you know the Ministry of Water Reclamation, Water Reclamation District, whatever it's called, right? But, you know, this guy, that guy, he's wearing the seal of the thus come ones, right? I mean, so as a kind of this kind of social force of these things <clears throat> was, trans, was borrowed into religious practice, right? In interesting ways. Um, they start out being small, such that you could wear them. Um, starting around in the 7th century, sway period, they start getting bigger and they're made out of stone. You can't wear those, you know, <laughs> anymore. And so you, that would, the seal of office was then kept in the office, right? And guarded, as I say, in a special box. And this sort of opened up a kind of seal-sized hole on people's bodies, right? People were used to wearing these things, right? And there was all kind of social magic, as I like to put it, attending on that. And so starting in the Tang Dynasty, seven later, later in the 700s, 800s, 900s, into the Song of 1100s and going on, you have this just explosion of personal seal practice where it's like now you can wear a seal, right? Before you couldn't because that was only for the minister, and now anybody can. That seems to have added to some, you know, added to this culture, which is also seen on paintings, right? You go to any museum that has Chinese paintings, and I think for many of us, for me initially, I was like, what the hell? Why are there seals all over this amazing painting, right? They're ruining it. No, I mean, not for them, right? The, the, the addition the, of the impression of the seal, you know, becomes part of the kind of cultural reception of the painting, right? And also, also they would write little poems on there. And they would have, you look at the seals and they're not just names. They have images of gourds often, right? Or other kinds of images, which have various cultural associations, <laughs> which themselves seem to have drawn on much earlier magical seals, um, which I haven't talked about here. They're kind of not Buddhist, but these Taoist, broadly speaking, um, seals, right? Does that help at all? Is that, you know, I'm kind of dancing around your question there, but... Uh, yeah, I just wondered how practitioner, Buddhist practitioners uh, use them uh, and if women use them, had possession of these, or were these solely the realm of nails in terms of buddhist practice it's hard to say i mean for the period i'd work on um yeah. i would like to read somebody going and looking at practitioners now in asia and seeing how they use because of course seals are still very important um with religious seals too on manuscripts um again one finds kind of personal seals stamped in all different places as, a, as signatures right mm-hmm. for example um there are a couple that um seem to have been women. So women were using seals, at least in some cases, right? Personal seals. Um, the official seals 
seem all to have been men. I mean, they, there was there was the local official who was, I believe, in every case, male. Um, but were they wearing these seals? The problem is, you know, it's very painful for me. You know, we don't find the actual seals. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them were made out of wood, and uh, which simply didn't survive. It seems like there are other kinds of seals. Yes. If we broaden it out to this broader, to me, to my mind anyway, category of stamps, religious stamps that were used in a variety of practices, like at the New Year, the the community would gather at the riverside, right? Why the riverside? Because you have wet clay and sand there. And so you can stamp into wet clay, like at Dunhuang, the sand elsewhere is dry. It's not going to take the impression very well. So they would gather at the river and they would stamp Buddha images and stupa images into the wet sand at the riverbank, right? As part of a very involved practice on New Year's Day that was for the kind of renovation of the world, right? Um, Women doing those practices, I like to think so. I don't know. It's very hard to say. Um, Were I a scholar of a later period, um, you know, there would be more information. And again, I would like to say the, the answer to that is yes. I will say that I was given a steel, a stamp, a seal, hard to say, of a particular version of the Bodhisattva Guanyin um, that is deeply, Southeast Asian one, that's deeply associated with women's um, religious communities. I can only assume that that stamp was made and used by, and is used by women in those cases, right? But someone just a friend of a friend just found out I was doing this project, sent me the seal, just came in the box in the mail. I had to actually do some research, find out what it was. Um, so, so yes, I think so. Thank you. Thank you, Hogetz. Thank you, Hogetsu and Paul. Um, just uh, as an example, um, I have this object, which is made of wood. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know if you can see, it's a lotus. I've used it. Uh, so I don't know if this is a seal or just a stamp, but I've used it uh, on some serene name cards for yeah. guys. So it's, it's uh, yeah, so it's a lotus stamp. Anyway, um, and just uh, to add, we have a few more names, to, and, I'll, and I'll, we can try and get to all of them. Just as a promotion, though, um, t- uh, two things. First, uh, what Friday, this Friday coming, uh, in the evening, there will be read- our reading that Dylan and Jason sponsor of the Flower Ornament Sutra, which Paul mentioned. Uh, so we do that the first Friday of the month. And uh, so that's Friday, this coming Friday evening is on the schedule. And I'm going to call on Nyozan next, who's, so Paul Klopp teaches at the University of Chicago, and Nyozan has been leading our uh, Wednesday evening um, Hyde Park group, and you're all welcome to attend that. It's uh, the link for that is on the website, and there's a number of people here from, who attend that group. So I uh, just wanted to mention that also Wednesday Wednesday uh, evening. So Nyozan, you're you're up next. Uh, yeah, Paul. Um, if you um, if this question falls out the purview of what you're really interested in and talking about, you can just dismiss it, make room for somebody else. But um, I am thinking that one of the other places in in sort of the Buddhist tradition, we hear about seals, uh, not always under that term. Sometimes they call the three marks of existence, sometimes the three seals. And I'm just wondering 
if you could say anything about the way that notion of seal articulates with like the ocean seal, that kind of thing, or are we talking about two different discourses that simply have a common vocabulary term? Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks for that. Um, I would say that you know, the marks of existence are, you know, this is an image of obviously the, the deep character of existence, right? And this imagery of seals, right, is the same kind of image in that way, right? It is the deep character of, of something, right? They did the identity of something. Um, and, and to the same way, in the same way that, um, impermanence, et cetera, is the, is part of the identity, right? Of existence in a sense, right? The nature of existence, um, that so because of that, a seal, the seal would just, you know, would work with that just perfectly well, right? I mean, in cases like the this, the ocean seal, right, or the seal of the Buddha, I mean, that's exactly what it's talking about, right? The the nature of things, right? The seal of the Buddha impresses the nature of things, right? The, as empty, as as impermanent, as whatever, right? you know, as unitary, the unitary body of the Buddha, perhaps. Um, into things, right? Um, which, you know, philosophically might be a way, strange way of thinking of it, but that's what the image is, right? And so the three seals, right? The three marks of existence, the three impressions, the three identities, natures marked into existence, right? Impressed into them that, so I, I don't know if I'm answering the question, but it seems to me that it's just sort of natural that, you know, writers would have had recourse to the imagery of seals, right? When talking about that, right? The three marks. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. Nice guitars. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so a couple more people. Uh, Daniel Vogel, we've been waiting. Thank you very much. Your question. Yes. Um, I wanted to, yeah, thank you very much for the talk. I found it extremely interesting. Um, I don't have a question per se, actually, but I was just thinking a lot about, I know nothing about seals, and I was just thinking how, you know, what a wonderful way it is that you've, you know, found this road of understanding ourselves through seals, because in a sense, you know, everything almost, I guess there are many, many roads to Rome, really, and you know, in my work, for example, as a clinical psychologist, you know, I'm, I'm, to me, feelings are seals in a sense. You know, there are, you know, whether we're studying our art or we're studying our belief systems. I mean, there are so many ways to understand ourselves. And I think it's fast because really there are many seals, I guess. It was just something I wanted to, to say. But also very quickly, very quick example I had as well of a mental image that has meant a lot to me uh, in my, in the beginning of my practice, which was, uh, at, at, um, at, through this community, uh, I remember a long time ago, of course, this image wasn't engraved in a real seal, but in a sense, it was a, a, an engraved image in my mind. I remember in the very early days um, watching uh, Tigan, if I can bring you into my example, settling in. I mean, I was sitting here, awkward, not knowing how to fit in into this community, 
uh, a bit afraid of the pain maybe of sitting for an hour or whatever, but just observing this image of you, Tigan, settling in. So I noticed it took time for you to move your robes around and you're moving a bit, you know, forwards and backwards. And to me, this image somehow spoke to me a great deal about the Dharma, spoke to me a great deal about what the practice was going to be. It was going to be very much about settling in and being um, observant of, I guess, these waves that you, Paul, were discussing earlier, you know, the, the waves of our emotions and our thoughts and all these, all these, these aspects of existence which would unsettle ourselves and ultimately... Cause, you know, cause suffering, basically. Um, so it was just an example of something that I observed, certainly in the early days, which just a simple image meant so much to me in understanding the Dharma slowly over a period of time. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I think uh, it just reminds me of, um, you know, in this broader history of seals outside of Asia, you know, this, the imagery of the seal and the impression was used as the the student and the teacher, right, or in Christian tradition of the believer and, and God, right, and and how the, the image, off, you know, is, is something that, you know, it's stamped onto us, right, supposedly, but it's also, you know, that's not an immediately, that's probably not an immediately uh, comfortable thing, right, uh, you know, having to fill out, you know, the particular contours of that image, right. Um, anyway, I'm making this up and riffing on it, but it just sort of that when you, the way you were talking about it makes me wonder if that, uh, you know, isn't part of it, right. That the difficulty of the seal, right. The demands made by the seal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, David Weiner, you get the last question. Uh, and, and th- thank you everyone. And thank you, Paul, for, uh, you know, really giving us some context of, uh, some of the, some, a part of the, of our tradition, David Weiner. Let me unmute myself first. Just a, it's really not about seals per se, but just a question that I wonder if we talk about the fifth ancestor receiving transmission and receiving the bowl from his teacher. And he took that bowl. Yeah. And that was his, is that in a certain sense, uh, a seal? Yeah. Would that be considered a seal? Because it is, he is taking that and that is basically his, I guess acknowledgement of his of his knowledge and his authority. So would that bowl be? Yeah, the robe too, right? Um, yeah, I think so, right? It, it, that these are kind of related images, right? A kind of family of of images, right? For for something, right? Whatever happens um, in transmission, right? Or whatever happens, um, you know, whatever's kind of at the heart of of Zen practice, right? I, I also it also makes me think that they're related because they're objects, right? They're external, right? They're, they're the way that one's identity as ancestor, right? New ancestor, new patriarch, whatever the word should be, um, is, is embodied in this thing, right? And in something external to us and the, the, the many different ways that Buddhist traditions have, have, seen that as helpful right have have done that right so it would be good to think more about the connection between the bowl and the seal right and the horsehair whisk you know and other things right the, 
the rakasu, perhaps the robe, right? Um, um, and when you're thinking about the material culture and right and how material culture and goes all the way down, right? It's not just this kind of add on, right? It's the way that tradition talks about it. It's there at the heart of things, right? It's, um, so thanks for that. That's very, that's very helpful. So Paul, thank you very much for um, provocative talk and uh, way of thinking about uh, our practice and, and uh, the ancient tradition behind it. So uh, thank you all for good questions and discussion. Uh, David Ray, if you would uh, please give us our closing chant and then we'll have announcements and uh, informal discussion for people who can stay. Yes, I will. So uh, before we chant the Heart Sutra, um, we're going to uh, chant the repentance verse three times. And I'm going to attempt to use the sound file for the Heart Sutra. So I'll ring and then we'll chant the repentance verse three times. Oh, my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born from body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born from body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born from body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra, ah, ah, ah. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and thus relieved all suffering. Shari Pudra form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself form. Sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness are also like this. Shari Pudra all dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Therefore given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight, no realm of mind, consciousness. 
extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom with full awareness we have chanted the heart of great wisdom sutra we dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in india great teacher shakyamuni buddha our first woman ancestor great teacher maha prajapati our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Togen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita. Mm-hmm. 